The Worldcraft Club Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. A time devoted to world building and its impact on narrative, where we discuss any and all topics involving the crafting of fictional settings to inspire your creativity. My name is James. And my name is Seth. And we are your hosts for this delightful half hour. Since the show presently has no sponsors, we're going to be running fake ad rates. These ads are intended as parody, and they should not be taken as anything but parody. So Seth, what's the deal with building believable spaces? (laughs) You know, I really like this intro. No nonsense. Get right into the meat of the matter. I don't mess around, Seth. I don't mess around. I want to get right into this. The people want to know, Seth. (laughs) Let me tell you. When you build a world, there is a core level of believability that must exist. Hmm. And unless you are writing surrealist fiction, that believability is based on reality, right? So with all fiction, there's definitely a level of hand-waving that can be done of somebody saying, well, I, I don't see the world that way or that's not how the world appears to me, but I'm going to go ahead and give you the benefit of the doubt and I'm just going to kind of let you do your thing. Um, yeah, I'll just give you a mulligan. Yeah, for sure. Well, at the end of the day, it's pretty important that whoever's consuming the fiction, that they are able to intrinsically believe that the space you're creating could actually exist. Because otherwise, they spend all of their mental power, all of their attention goes to, well, how does that work? Instead of, what is the story that I'm being asked to consume? Yeah, like you don't you don't want your readers to get bogged down in questioning kind of what's happening and its plausibility within the space. And um, that's tricky and that that so depends on your audience. Uh, so so we just got off uh, an interview and one of the things he was talking about is how he has spreadsheets to manage his travel. And I thought that was fascinating because you know, there's some guy who's going to look at that and go, well, if they were pulling at three G's for that length of time, their kilometers per second wouldn't really get them to a neighboring system in time. You know, you got a guy that's calculating that out. So part of it is knowing your audience. And that's like a sci-fi thing. You know, it's like knowing that the person that reads it likes science, but not just science or not just science fiction. You're going to find that in fantasy too. Right. You're going to find that with people who are going to say, well, that's not how the magic worked Mm. last time you had magic. Yeah. You know, they're going to say, well, but what do they do about X, Y or Z? So I think building believable spaces is very important for world building. I think we can kind of have that as our ground level. I think it depends on context. Like, I think it it totally depends on who happens to be reading and what the purpose of your space actually is. And I'm sorry, I, I, I think I just mowed over your thread there. Yeah, no, that's okay. That's okay. I think you're right. Context is very important. I do think we can establish that we have to build believable spaces as the baseline. But you're right. The amount of building that we do and the amount of the amount of believability really does depend on context. So 
even in a sci-fi as a genre, we have some wildly different contexts. Because if you look at somebody like uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the point is that somehow we convince ourselves that this is a believable thing, but the setting is also satire, yeah. right? It's mocking something. When Douglas Adams writes these books, he does so in a way that there's an underlying level of believability because everything that he talks about Though it's slightly absurd, we are able to tie it to something in our own life, right? The underlying principles are super solid. But we also see these the importance of building a believable space when we start to look at, say, a fantasy setting that has magic in it. Because it's one thing to say, yeah. oh, there's magic for that. It's another thing to build it, build the world yeah. in a way where it doesn't feel like a hand wave. It doesn't feel like a get out of jail free card or a cheap tactic on the part of the author or the, the creator to just say, well, look at me, explain this away. I don't want to have to deal with it in a real way. So I'm just going to I'm going to get rid of it. So in, in believe, building believable spaces, what we're talking about is is the world in which the characters inhabit and the uh, the, the literal physical space that they're occupying. And, and sometimes it seems as if the world needs to be little more than a sense of tone. Um, an interesting one was uh, Blade Runner 2049. Um, I went and saw that movie uh, in theaters and I'm, I'm glad I did because the soundtrack done by... Hans Zimmer was just like flipping mind blowing and just really oppressive. And the way they did, I believe it's set in LA and um, the way they did LA was, it was just grimy. The buildings were tall. Everything spoke of dehumanization of the people surrounding them. The kind of um, like, like even down to sex, it was viewed not even casually. It was viewed as trivial. And it made it, it dehumanized everything it touched, and there were all these uh, that they kind of put that really front and center in the movie, and it was it was really disconcerting. And that was them creating LA. You know, you have the, all these like basically like obscene ads and things like that that are floating around, and you just kind of see the the grimy underbelly of the city, and even the rain just felt dirty. We don't really have a lot of details on LA, but you know what? could use a clean <laughs> you know like and that's what they were kind of portraying in that in that movie and it seems like even in those small details the conveyance of tone seems vitally important in the creating a space that's believable that needs to follow the narrative tone well even if um yeah details are thin on the ground so what's interesting to me about that example is that there you have a situation where like you said, you don't have this, um, you don't have a wealth of details about the city, but you still, it is mm. something that we relate to, right? The darkness that you find in it, the bleakness yes. that you find in it is something that we relate to. When you see those ads, you look at them and they are not so far of a stretch from the ads we see now. And so... There's yeah. enough of a similarity where you say, oh, look, they're objectifying somebody. And you can look at that and you can yeah. say, okay, I believe that that could be the future of this city. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they took a concept and they extrapolated it into the extreme, and that's that's what I think made L.A. and Hitchhiker not Hitchhiker's Guide. <laughs> L.A. and Hitchhiker's Guide is a very different prospect. Um, L.A. in uh, in Blade Runner twenty forty nine was just this, uh, yeah, really, really kind of bleak dystopia kind of place, and then yeah, that that was it. You can see how yeah we might get there. And I think that's what lend it, lent it believability as a sci-fi kind of product. What you're talking about is something really, really specific. You're talking about a, an idea, taking an idea and extrapolating out from it details and tone, but taking an idea that is close enough to us that we don't we don't lose the message. Well, here's an idea that I've been kicking around. We, we talked a little bit about this um, last time we got a chance to sit down and talk. We came to this idea that actually harkens to the Hitchhiker's Guide. And uh, there's a torture device called the Infinite Perspective Vortex. And what it does is it puts a person in a room and then it takes a piece of fairy cake. And because all atoms on some level impact another atom, they can extrapolate a complete view of the universe from this piece of fairy cake. And in doing so, they demonstrate to the viewer who is now being treated to an expansive view of the universe with a little dot that says, you are here. They are showing them how utterly insignificant they are in comparison to the rest of the world around them. And it causes them to go insane. Everyone except for Zephod Beeblebrox, but that's because he was in a simulation and the simulation was built for him. And so when the universe revealed itself to him, it revealed that the universe in that place was actually built for him. And so he realized that he was the center of that universe. And so he ate the fairy cake. Um, but <laughs> the point that I'm trying to make somewhat I, going I just, in a circle I, sorry, here. I got to cut in. I love those books so much. They're phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, satire is a really, really good way of finding kind of a, a space for introspection here. But um, the point is this, is like you extrapolate the entire universe from the piece of fairy cake. I think we need to find the fairy cake in every setting that we create. And uh, the, the fairy cake in Blade Runner 2049 is we wish to convey a tone of, uh, of bleakness, or we, we wish to take a look at a current trend in society, and we wish to extrapolate upon that to the nth degree and have all the atoms interact off the back of that. Now, if you build your world saying, I need this element of a narrative, and it could be, I need there to be a, um, my book is about, in part, the interactions between the rich and the poor. And so I, I need the city to have a really stark class divide. And then you say, well, in order for that to happen, we need an aristocracy. We need haves and we need have-nots. And we need systems that prevent one from, from piercing into the other. And so before long, you start to build this idea about a city. And you say, well, there may even be a physical divide between them. What if there are some people who live on the outside of the city walls in poverty and they're like subsistence farmers and the people who live on the inside of the city and kind of live off the wealth of the land and are higher up in there. And then you kind of go, well, you need sort of a corrupt government to do that. And what if the city was very old and it expanded outside its borders and before long your fairy cake has expanded into like a world that's quite a bit bigger so this is the other half of the infinite perspective vortex you want the people that are reading your book to believe that everything outside of them is way bigger than mm -hmm. it is at the end of the day you're extrapolating from the fairy cake 
the fairy cake is the point. And um, that's kind of something that I, I kind of keep coming back to is, is what's the point you're trying to make? Where's the fairy cake? And uh, should yeah. I eat it? And you should eat it. Fairy cake is delicious. But you should also, I'm a very strong believer that when you are consuming a work of fiction, while there is some, there's some room for your own interpretation, etc., I really think mm-hmm. that you get the most value in examining the point that the creator intends to convey. You don't have to agree with the point yeah. that the creator intends to convey. You just you need to consume it in order to properly understand that work. Mm, I love that. So let's let's shift this though a little bit more practical, right? Because yeah, let's yeah, make something let, concrete. Because because I really I love the idea of finding fairy cake. And I have a feeling that we're going to start using that terminology pretty often because it's a really, it's a really important point that whatever an artist creates has some sort of focus. There's something that they're trying to convey, but in order to kind of bring this conversation a little bit more practical, let's look at the city that you were just talking about, because one of the things we want to avoid is saying, okay, I want to convey, let's say my fairy cake is examining how people interact when there is a divide between them, when one group thinks that they're better than another another group, right? So we're going to examine the interaction between the haves and have-nots. And so we're going to create this city and we're going to say, I have a city and it is going to have nobility and it's going to have peasants and the peasants are going to live outside the city and the nobility is going to live inside the city. Great. I'm going to set my story in there and I'm going to put my person, mm-hmm. my main character, and maybe he's going to be a peasant who's, who's interacting with some nobility. And then there's stuff, stuff happens, which is yeah. great. Yeah. 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 I think that on a practical level, there are a couple of things that really differentiate between a good world builder and a mm. poor world builder, a good world builder and a mediocre world builder. And I think that these details don't have to be be necessarily fully fleshed out, right? Instead, they just need to be touched upon. So what are some of the considerations that we have for a city? Like what what actually makes a city believable? Well, here's the thing, right? Like, so cities appear really, really organically, but I, I found this out the other day. What um, One of the cool things about making a podcast is that you wind up researching things you love because you made a podcast about something you love. So I, I, I was, you know, getting curious about how cities form. And it turns out that like, they're very organic in their construction, but there's also almost always a very cool logic to a place that a place is built. So um, I live in central Pennsylvania and uh, out here there's a string of cities. It's it's Harrisburg, Mechanicsburg, Carlisle, and, and, and there's a couple of others going down. They're all exactly 10 miles apart. That's really curious. You can draw, it, it's weird. You can draw a circle around each one of the cities and all of those circles like edges will just touch. They won't overlap. Um, it's super bizarre. And the reason why 
is because the amount of distance that somebody could reasonably travel in one day from their homestead to a new location to sell their goods or wares was around five miles, way back when, when these cities were founded. So that was a day's travel in terms of like, you leave home, you travel to the city, you sell your goods, you return at the end of the day. That was five miles was a reasonable distance so there's, to travel. So there's a point and, um, to it. There's a, yeah. there's a purpose behind the location. Exactly. It's it's organic, but there's a purpose, which is is just kind of a, a cool thought cool. because like any sort of city then that you're looking at, in, in my view, it has to have a function or goal of some kind. Like it has to it has to have had some kind of idea in mind. A lot of the cities that I'm talking about, they got uh, wares in from the local area. So they were probably market towns. Um, but then you look at other places like... Um, London's really, really interesting. You go back into massive history of London, it's changed it's changed its goals a lot of times. But as the seat of the empire, you have places like the Port Authority in London, which is this huge, imposing building in the River Thames. And it is just the goal of it was when somebody comes to visit the empire, they look at this big honking rock structure and think, holy crap, what did it take to make that? We are never the goal was to humble revolting. We are never revolting. Yeah, exactly. Anybody that can build something like that, I just don't want to mess with them. And uh, DC yeah. had a similar idea behind it. It was designed to humble foreign heads of state by uh, with, a, with a gross display of, of power. And um, so sometimes these cities are built with these goals in sort of an organic sense. They just sort of develop. You know, everything's within five miles. Why? Because, you know, people wanted to sell stuff here and this place was convenient. So um, it became a market town. Other times they're built explicitly for some other reason. And sometimes they're built for one reason. And then that reason changes as the needs change around them or empires fall or rise around. That's them. so fascinating. So that reminds me of, uh, of Canterbury in Australia, mm. which is the capital of Australia. And it is also a town that is almost empty for part of the year because when government is not in session, everybody goes home. And so they have some universities, but people just don't stay. So that's that's really fascinating. It's just nothing's there. It's just built yeah, as it's a built capital. as a capital, but but it is located geographically, as you just mentioned, for a reason, right? Mm. There's a goal for the city. Yeah, it's it's just kind of weird when you get purpose built cities. It's almost a strange thing. But when you look into the history of any given city, you find that there was some sort of goal in mind, and it it kind of leads me to another thing is like. Geography actually plays a really big role as well. If we're using the concrete example of a city, um, the geography is gonna gonna be an interesting factor. If you build like a city like on the edge of a desert, it might be the last stop before people go wandering through the desert mm -hmm. for whatever reason, say a caravan or something like that. So it might be a very busy city, like a bazaar or, built or around like an that. oasis, or if it's in the middle of the yeah. desert, fresh water. Yeah. That is really fascinating. And you do see a lot of massively massive cities built on rivers or next to the coast because you get trade. There are highways. Yeah. In order to move stuff up and down coastal cities as well are another example of that. And so um, it's interesting to say then that your, your goal 
kind of needs to suit the limitation of your geography. The geography is is a big limiter on it. You're probably not going to set a big sprawling urban metropolis in the mountains. It's going to be limited by that. You're going to maybe think be thinking about things like mining or perhaps a, uh, a trading post along a mountain pass or something. Um, it's not going to be a, uh, a, metropolis. a big old big old place yeah it's not gonna be a metropolis not likely Um, most of those are located on the coasts or plains where they have space to sprawl out and more importantly where they have food Food. yeah where you can farm and actually get like you can generate enough food to feed your uh feed your populations you're growing growing number of people like it's ironic as well that cities have a tendency to die when they stop growing and uh cities have a tendency to stop growing when they die (laughs) you you know i mean it's kind of like it's 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 kind of a catch-22 it's uh so so there's another really fascinating thing when you look at a city and that is that rich people rarely live in the center of a city they always move away and so this classic fantasy understanding we have of all of the rich people grouped together only works in a setting where there's uh, low communication and low transportation, right? Yes. The minute rich people can move, they move. They don't want to be around other people. They want their own space. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is why you get, you know, you, you get the yeah. suburbs now and, and uh, you know, wealthy gated communities, whereas the rich in, in, in a fantasy era would have wanted to live close right. to a city. But then some of these problems may well be solved That's by magic. Thing. And so I was just thinking about that. I was thinking, OK, so let's say we have this city that we're creating and we want, you know, our fairy cake is this divide between the haves and have nots. The rich. Yeah, the rich mm-hmm. and the poor. And so we say, all right, we've got the rich. But let's say we add magic to the equation. All of a sudden, they can communicate with each other. They can move goods. They can travel distances quickly, right? Either through portals or through specialized carriages or or creatures that they fly on or whatever. You know, whatever it is. They have the technology because of the magic. Well, it might be even more interesting to say in our city setting, all of the slums are in the city. You know, there is yeah. there is maybe a a large palace or government facility that is overlooking the city, but inside the wall is where you don't want to live, right? But that's where that's where all of the people live, all of the poor people live, because that's where all of the manufacturing is. That's where all of the production is. And so as somebody who is on the lower rung of society, right, now that we have added technology through magic maybe you're all of your people are stuck in these big walled slums churning away working the machine you know and that adds a whole nother layer to our fairy cake or it extrapolates something from our fairy cake where you start to say oh that resonates with me i get in my car i go to work i do my job i come home right i'm on the treadmill yeah So we start to be able to create, when we start to add actual concrete detail, I feel like we... It takes us a step further. It does. And and it makes our stories, it makes our our worlds a little bit more relatable, a little bit more believable. All right. So far, we've talked about how every city, again, we're just, we're using a city as a kind of practical example of 
how this plays out, how finding your fairy cake and then extrapolating from it plays out. So far, we've talked about geography, like where a city is located. We've talked about cities needing a reason for existence or a goal that spurs the development of the city. So it strikes me that there's something else that we often kind of take for granted and is a really important part of fleshing out a city, and that is governance. So a lot of times, hey, those are three Gs. Geography, goal, governance. Bam! I like it. Okay. It works well. So the... This is why we make the big bucks, Seth. That's <laughs> professionals. Yeah, I like it. I yeah. like it. So governance is an interesting thing that we often take for granted because when we create a world, we often use authority as a means of generating conflict or tension. And I know yes. we want to talk uh, in another uh, episode, we want to talk about generating conflict. But this is something that we often use for generating conflict. Yeah. But we don't often actually explore how it works, right? So if let's say we have our big city and we, we've mm. set up this divide between the rich and the poor. Yeah. A city can only be so corrupt before everything just implodes right? Before yeah. the whole thing burns to the ground. So the question of how do we create a city that is corrupt enough to generate conflict, but is not so corrupt that it would have burned to the ground 15 years ago? That's a really just, it's a good way to, to flesh out our fairy cake. Yeah. I think this is the, the, the icing atop the fairy cake, if you like. Um, governance is huge like it plays a massive role in our in our day-to-day -day lives and we often take it for granted and it's uh it's uh which is a good sign generally in governance like if you can ignore its presence they're doing great the, the question really is how how do you initiate the soft corruption of governance the benign corruption of governance the kind that lines people's pockets without bending too many noses out of shape and so you need you can take a lot of really straightforward real world examples. And, and the reality is, is that corruption in governance often takes very benign kind of forms that you may not notice. And usually it's uh, targeting folks they can get away with targeting. So like a, a good example would be a, a city that suddenly clamps down a little bit harder on speeding than it ought to. So um, nobody likes people speeding through their neighborhood. What I have a problem with is when the city says, "Hey, we've got to we've got to fill the coffers a little bit. You know, like we're we're on a tax deficit. Let's uh let's initiate speeding tickets as a as a form of taxation for a little while, functionally, and just ramp up our ticketing efforts." There's something sort of dishonest about that because the goal of a speeding ticket is let's stop people from doing a dangerous habit and let's disincentivize it by uh, using using like a cash disincentive. So we say, we charge you for going too fast. It's a fine. We don't think it's worth jail, but a fine's a good plan. And it's not in the spirit of the law to say, let's line our coffers with speeding ticket revenue. So a lot of times when we talk about this kind of corruption, the city watch needn't be on the take explicitly. But they might be going coming down a little bit harder on the pickpockets than they used to. They might be taking a little bit more revenue, and it might pad the resume of the city 
guard captain for that region of the city to say, look at my income. So it's kind of interesting to look at corruption in a very soft and light way when we talk about that in, in order specifically to create the world we're looking for, which is where the rich and poor divide is highlighted very significantly. Yeah, and we could even do, when we look at corruption, I, I, I like the way you're framing this. It's sort of a benign evil. And that's a weird way to put it, right? Because it is, it is wrong. <laughs> yeah. Corruption isn't, isn't good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a sense in which people excuse it by saying, well, does it really hurt that much? So you might see this with a captain of the watch being maybe a little bit more predisposed to listen to a shopkeeper rather than the people who came into his shop, right? Because the shopkeeper is there. He's generating revenue. The shopkeeper is going to contribute to the watch's Christmas party, right? Yeah, yeah, it's the shopkeeper. He always brings the wine to the Christmas exactly, party. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and so there's a there are a lot of details here that we can take from real life that contribute to the way government works, the way relationships work, the way power dynamics work. And one of the one of the things that is always off-putting to me is when I'm looking at a world and there is kind of pointless cruelty mm. because only crazy people are pointlessly cruel. Humans are cruel all of the time, but there is a reason for it, right? And greed, just flagrant greediness is actually mm. fairly rare because you have to be you have to be in a social situation where your greediness does not come back to bite you. Right? Yeah. There's a social cost. There is a social cost to it. And so understanding the kind of the motivations and and all of that behind power dynamics, I think is really important for building a solid world. And again, we're talking about the difference, you know, between great world building and mediocre world building. Because as a mediocre world builder, you could just say, well, these guys are mean. The, the yeah. city watches. They're just scumbags and they're on the take. They're just jerks. Yeah. But to go a step beyond that and to build a really great world you recognize that no, the watch has a way of doing things that they have settled into over years because it works. Yeah. And even as uh, I, I think it would be instructive to go back to our interview with, uh, with IE Horton earlier, because he talks a little bit about this and the development of these kind of nations and how sometimes like people for whatever reason seem content under a system that we would view as barbaric and probably is corrupt. I, I think uh, the, the one man, one vote theory from Anik Morpork uh, comes to mind. I think you may want to elaborate on that one. Yeah. <laughs> so you will, I'm sure, in these podcasts, often hear me gushing about Terry Pratchett. Um, yeah, man, what a fantastic writer. Uh, anyway, Anik Morpork is is kind of the main city of Discworld, and it's it's kind of the mega metropolis. And there is a ruler, a patrician, veterinary, who is a dictator, and but it's it's humorous because they use this phrase right one man one vote and technically everybody could vote but what it really means is that the patrician is one man and he has one vote he is the man and he has the vote <laughs> which is just it's a brilliant way of again you have your your fairy cake which in this 
setting in Anik Morpork is this is the giant metropolis where everybody's just smashed together and and they have to live together and they have to deal with all of these different things. But using governance, using a specific form of government in the city, nobody doubts that the patrician is a dictator. It's just that life under him is so much better than life under anybody else that it is an evil worth bearing with. And it lends color and it lends believability. It lends an air of believability because we can relate to it, right? We understand yeah. what it is to be oppressed, but we also understand what it is to live in a system that is not perfect, but is better than what it could be. Yeah, which is interesting. The impulse to change, you often have to have an agitation so strong that it causes people to say they are comfortable to give up what they presently have in order to change it. So this is the kind of thing with building a a, a governmental system. Um, and, you know, we, we, we needn't also get hung up necessarily on corruption just so much as to say that corruption is always going to be a part of that system. Um, there's always going to be kind of some way that someone is abusing whatever system you've got in there. And this may as well be residuals coming off the back of, uh, again, our interview with IE Horton, whose uh, me method of world construction is basically make something perfect and smash it with greedy people, yeah. which is just a phenomenally interesting way to do stuff. So um, we can definitely build a whole pile of different cities off the back of this. Basically, you, you kick it off with what's the tone I want to set? What is the thing that I want to talk about? What's my fairy cake? And then you let everything else build off from the atoms that are that are bashing off that. So you say, okay, you know, we've got a rich poor divide. So we really want them to live in separate places. But as you start to build that up and you ask questions about the city's original goal and its governance and its geography, and you answer those questions, you start to build a more concrete world and you wind up going back and kind of adding layers to what you originally produced. You don't want to miss out on that core though. Never lose what you're trying to talk about narratively, no matter what context or setting it is. But you want to try to build upon it using those three Gs, goal, governance, geography, to get a good sense of a concrete city and, and how that can, uh, that can add a lot of sense of depth and background color believability to your settings. And what's really awesome is this isn't just specific to cities, right? This is this is all of world building, right? You find your fairy cake, you extrapolate based on that, you figure out the details of your world, and then you go back and add layers to your fairy cake, right? Your original goal or the the thing that you wanted to get across. And I think I think it works perfectly fine for for anything you want to build. What I'm really excited for is in an upcoming episode, we're actually going to take a crack at this. Just a super, mm. super brief preview. We want to try doing some on-the-spot world building, right? We've been talking about world building. We've talked about how excited we are about it and how much we enjoy it. I think that it's about time to put our money where our mouth is and actually construct some settings. So that's what we're going to do for you in the uh quick world episode that will be coming up shortly into your ear holes. Uh, but for the moment, is it um, going to be Patreon exclusive? Is that our Patreon? It's going to Patreon exclusive one. 
So that's going to be coming to Patreons only. Uh, <laughs> okay, so we want to talk about this. Actually, this is a great time to talk about it. Um, one of the things that we are doing is we are releasing, at, at present, we're releasing two episodes for general the general public. We are running a Patreon um, because this is something that we would love to be able to do more than we currently can afford to do it. Mm. And yeah. that the Patreon will help us start working towards that. So if you're enjoying our content, if you'd like to hear more of this content, please do subscribe. What it will get you right out of the gate is a third episode every month. Once we hit certain goals, we're planning on doubling our content, just straight up going to six total episodes, four for the general public, two Patreon exclusive. So I'd invite you to uh, check out in the description all of the relevant details. You can find it by just going to patreon.com slash worldcraftclub. That's going to get you there too. Mm -hmm. Thank you for joining Seth and I on the Worldcraft Club podcast. Please go ahead and like us, subscribe to us on your preferred app. And if you use iTunes, rate us five stars if you think we're worth the rating. It really helps our numbers. If you're listening here, you're missing out on half the content along with loads of other goodies. So please consider becoming an exclusive club member at our Patreon page, starting at as low as $5 a month. If you have any questions, you can go ahead and jump on our webpage, worldcraftclub.com, to get the latest updates on our blog. We're also available on Twitter and Instagram. This has been the Worldcraft Club podcast. Thank you for listening.